What a wonderful day to be together, isn't it? A day where even throughout the weekend we've been hearing people even on the streets, Happy Easter. And it is a happy day. It's a triumphant day. How much I gloried in the music this morning as we came into the service. And just for a moment to, to feel something of the triumphalism of our faith when so often we feel uh, in this world that it's, it's, it's not. It is a day to celebrate. It's a day that celebrates a historical, what we believe over 2,000 years of confessing it to be a historical fact. This is the day, Easter, where we celebrate that Christ died. He died in a manner in solidarity with us in order to satisfy God's justice on our behalf. But we would never have known if that justice had been satisfied, if there was any left over after Christ's death, except that then on the third day, Christ, God by the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. We don't mean by that a, some kind of a metaphor. We truly mean that it's a fact of history, bodily resurrection. Now, it's a fact not in so far as it's a scientific fact. We can't put it in a test tube and test it out. It is a historical fact with great and, and overwhelming evidence to the reality of it. It's true that, that he was raised from the dead and there was a cynicism to the point where he invited people to touch his hands, to eat with him at breakfast. It's true that over 400 people who would have been living in the days of the writing of the New Testament to know that it was not a fact, two, 400 people he visited bodily on earth over a period of many days. Again, the same people that would have bought when the literature that we call our New Testament was written to declare that he'd been raised from the dead. Where are all these naysayers who saw him? No, quite the contrary. They are witnesses. But perhaps the greatest historical pointer to this being the fact of history is that all of the followers of Christ by the time of his death, had become cowards. They had deserted him. They had denied him. Even Peter, his greatest and most ardent follower, could not stand with him. After his death, they were a loose, small group of vagabonds in Rome. Not even a historical glitch yet in terms of a movement would go. Huddled up in a room, after the resurrection, something happened. Something happened to these disciples where afterwards they were the most bold and courageous men that the earth has ever known. And women. These are people who would all die. Just about every one of them would die for what would have been a lie if it weren't a fact. These are people who, in the words of a great historian in that day, turned the world upside down whose followers would be martyrs in Rome, who would die ungodly and ghastly deaths merely for the right to confess him as Lord. And so, if you will, I want to assume for the rest of this sermon that we are talking about a real and historical fact. But that is not the point of the sermon. Or is this a historical fact that just is a historical point of memorial? 
Is it something we look back to to sort of validate God and to validate the Christian faith, but that's it? Is there any real resurrection power today? And if there is, how would we discern it? What would it look like? That is the thing I want to talk about. And so in the context even of last week, we had this probably one of the most significant conferences we've ever had on what we described as integrated health. A new movement, as some of you may know, and in the health fields of discerning that, that there is, must be a much more comprehensive understanding of health than merely biological. I won't go into the studies that I cited as introduction last week at that conference, but needless to say, there are incredible and evidentialist uh, studies, based studies that would suggest that, that human health is more than biological and therefore human caregiving must be more than biological. That there is a spiritual and relational and psychological dynamic to health that is just as powerful in, in terms of people's happiness and in terms of people's thriving and being empowered as there is just that our biology is fixed. And of course, we all acknowledge that ultimately, all of us biologically will die, 100%. There's no question about it. And so where is the resurrection in all of this? Where do we fit it? Is it real, not just historically, but now, as to change our lives if we were to embrace it? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, because I hope and pray there will be a major uh, and shocking message that will go into our hearts today as we think about what's going on here. Let's pray. And so, Father, be with us now, we pray. Help us to hear, open our hearts, no matter how hardened. Give each of us, dare us, Lord, I pray, by your Spirit, dare us just to consider what is here in Scripture so clearly made manifest not only that there is a historical resurrection, but there is the possibility of a future resurrection. But not merely a future resurrection, but oh God, there is, even now, a resurrection of the Spirit that could change each of our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, into our hearts. Would you, Lord? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come uh, to this amazing passage, but I want to give you a context of 2 Corinthians. And I want to turn us, therefore, to chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. But I want you to hear something here that's going on that's going to explain what Paul will say in chapter 4. He says in chapter 12 that a thorn was given me in the flesh. He described it in the most horrific terms, a messenger of Satan. He described it as harassing him, of keeping him from being bold and conceited. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. What is he talking about? Three times. If you understand numerology, particularly in the New Testament, this three times idea is very much related to the three days. This kind of irony of, of power that comes out of darkness. 
three times means I pleaded with all of my heart. I had passion. He asked God to take away his suffering. And God, to the way at least he expected it, said, no. That's not the kind of sermon you wanted to hear on Easter Sunday, is it? He said no. The fact is, things happen. We all know it. It makes Christianity a mockery if we don't acknowledge that things happen. I go back to a, 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 a reunion, and I think of Janet Bradford, one of the most living, alive human beings I've ever known. Cheerleader, but a great athlete, a scholar, a lawyer. She grows up, raises children, powerful in every way. Never smoked a cigarette in her lives, and things happen. She gets lung cancer, and she died a couple of weeks ago. Things happen. Even when we pray, God, take it away, things happen. So evidently, there's something about the resurrection we don't understand because I don't know that we have room for death in it. But we should. I'm giving you a glimpse. What was the thorn in the flesh? We really don't know for sure. I think that's actually the point. Some have surmised that it was his blindness. We know of evidence in Romans 16 that he had gone blind or almost blind, such that he had to have others write the letters for him. Some speculate it pertains to in the flesh more, general, more figuratively, as in some incredible and horrific temptation. Some believe that maybe his celibacy is related to his sexuality, and he's, he struggled with his position and his experience of, of marriage from the Scripture and, and how to handle it. Some surmise that it's persecution. There's certainly evidence for that. But intentionally, we don't know, and that's the point. This is written in a way where, therefore, all suffering can be put into this passage. All suffering. How do we define suffering? Well, again, there have been many studies to look at the issue of study and Many today, I think, have, a pretty, have found that, that suffering, quite simply, is that which causes us to lose something. It's, it's typically related or surrounded with loss. What does it mean to suffer? The most simple and yet holistic way to describe it, suffering entails the subjective experience of the loss of some perceived good. It is this that gives suffering its negative an undesirable character, of course. No, you didn't come to Easter Sunday to embrace suffering. You want the triumph. I know. I do too. So, Pastor, why are you saying this stuff? Why this passage, of all passages, to talk about? As you go deeper into suffering, as those have studied it in evidential studies, we begin to see that suffering is related to some sense of loss of personhood, perhaps. Some sense of loss or something that threatens the loss of security in this world or significance in this world or something that we lose that, that we believe takes away the possibility of happiness. At the heart of all suffering, whether it's the loss of hearing, whether it's the loss of sight, whether it's being handicapped, whether it's a great accident, whether it's the loss of a loved one, 
whether it's rejection from college, whether it's rejection from a job, whether it's being fired, you could go on and on and on. Suffering at its core threatens our sense of who we are, what we believe we need in order to be happy. I know if you were to think about it in the ways that you've suffered, and I know you have suffered, every one of you, at the heart What's at the heart of it is one of those things. How can I be happy if I go blind, Lord? I know I've prayed that prayer many, many times. Some of you have seen their children suffer. How could they ever be happy with this handicap? Or how could they ever be happy if they don't find this or get into this school or have this job or whatever it is? Suffering is universal. That's the point of the passage. And the process of suffering may itself bring about, though, some unexpected characteristics or character. There is a study done out of the Harvard School of Public Health that has begun to discern that in this integrated medicine kind of scheme that we have grossly underestimated the power of suffering towards a holistic healing. I won't go through the study, but notice then what happens after in the same passage I just read to you in chapter 12. After the thorn, after God denying it, he picks up, he said, but he said to me, in response to his prayers, take away the suffering, he said to me, quote, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power will be made perfect in your weakness. Paul then says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my suffering so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I will, I am content with my weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities for when I am weak, I have found that I am most strong. What did Paul discover? What's the context for this discovery? How might this context fit into the pattern of the historical fact that Christ died? He suffered the cross. And Christ rose from the dead wherein he triumphed over his suffering. You may know that this weekend is the 20th year sole anniversary of the Columbine. Some of you, if you're really young, don't remember Columbine, but it really was, in my memory at least, the first of the major mass killings uh, that rocked the nation. Now, there have been some others, but that was a huge and horrific event. You've probably been hearing about it on the news if you not if you weren't if you don't remember it yourself. I can remember it very care very vividly going, wow, what, what's happened to our world? And in this 30, 20 year anniversary, they're they're interviewing, they're talking, they're, they're the, the media is seeking out people to that were there that could give testimony and witness to the pain and the suffering and and all that, that comes with it. There was particularly three people that was, was, was uh, uh, put forward in, in, by CBS News. 
one morning this week. Three people who had all uh, been asked to write a letter. I think they actually had done it. I don't know. But, but you know, you've probably heard of it, a letter to self. In other words, 20 years later, they wrote a letter to themselves 20 years earlier. Talking to them in the second person, if you will. I found myself listening to those letters and just being deeply moved, deeply moved with the pain. Yes, the suffering was real. And not for a moment was it cherished. So don't get me wrong. But I was also moved by these letters to self at how all three of these people had emerged by their own admission, more fully healthy people, more fully empowered people, more purposefully driven people. One was a basketball player who lost her coach. Even the day of the very shooting had had a, 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 a communication with him and an excitement about his promoting her to a scholarship in college and basketball and, and how much she loved this coach who had become a father figure to him and he was one of those who had gotten killed. 20 years later, after being fighting many, many years with deep depression, the loss of her scholarship, now she is a happily married woman to the man she calls of her dreams with wonderful children, but much more to the point, her life is now not the same. It was a turning point, the suffering, that gave her power that she never possibly could have imagined, a power of purpose, a power of passion, a woman advocating for and ministering to those who now suffer tragedy. There was the father of a son who was killed. He was a shy and mundane man. His son was the same way, a sweet son. He concedes that there's never a day, and anyone who's lost a child can understand, there was never a day since where he doesn't, the first thing he thinks about when he wakes up is his son every day. The shoes that his son was wearing that day, he, he saved. And his life got transformed. This man now, with those shoes on his feet, every time he speaks to a gymnasium filled with high school kids, this once shy man is now circuiting around the country, encouraging and strengthening those who suffer, particularly targeting and focusing on the life that can be lived after suffering. A man who still grieves, but a man who's empowered. And then there was this cheerleader who was this beautiful woman cheerleader who was severely wounded, her whole shoulder had to be reconstructed several times. Multiple reconstruction surgeries. Again, 20 years later, someone who still 
has nightmares. But someone who now writes, oh, does she write? She writes books and she likes essays and she writes memos and she writes in manners that will, again, that, that reveals a kind of strength and a power that, that is now open to the world for inspiration and empowerment. Her message to self, her conclusion was, you'll not only survive, you will thrive. It's these kind of people even as now reviewed by the Apostle Paul, that I want to inspire us to think about Easter in a fresh new way. What would it mean, and I'll call this to have resurrection health. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it goes on to say, or it goes to the passage we heard read, it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's that's the symbol of something very weak and fragile. Something, as you know, if you have a clay jar, if you drop it, it smashes. We are like a treasure, notice, in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Here's that theme again that we heard in chapter 12. He goes on to say, you heard it said, how they are, he's afflicted in every way. But he's not crushed. He's perplexed. He has doubts. But he's not despairing. He's persecuted, but he's not forsaken. He's struck down, but he's not destroyed. And then he says this, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Ah, put an asterisk in your head. There's something about suffering. If and when we suffer with being informed by the meaning of the cross in our salvation history, a cross that meant to put to death the impurities, put to death the injustices, put to death the things that destroy us, our idols, the things that we obsess on, that we think will make us happy. In other words, it takes a person, the cross, when, you go, when they suffer through the lens of the cross, that begins to discern the medicinal power of the cross, but only if for the resurrection power that is matched to it. Again, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That's the idea of this world that we live in and what we're to expect. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death now with this faith for Jesus' sake. There's a purposefulness in my suffering to carry in the flesh the life of Christ in the world, to manifest a power that is not human in nature. Think about that. How would we ever manifest the power of God if it can be attributed to our own power? There's something about suffering that wants to be a witness to the world 
but it's not a vague witness. It's not a hopeless witness. It's a witness because there is a power that eventually will, as we see, that will triumph over our biological outward suffering. But here he goes again. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Do you see what's happening in this passage? We see in this passage how faith in the resurrection of Christ changes everything about how and why we suffer. As through the prism of the cross to resurrection, there's a pattern here in Scripture. There is a very clear pattern. It's a pattern that we could go all the way back to Adam and Eve and discern how all of redemptive history shows this pattern. A pattern of how suffering, to put it in, in modern terms, can be medicinal when coupled by faith and belief in God and his purposes for us. The cross, suffering, leads to resurrection that is, a more abundant life. Think about it for a minute. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but resurrection by its very definition assumes that you died to something, that something was put to death. Call it what you will, we'll call it suffering. The loss of something. Even the evidentialist studies confirm as much. Resurrection assumes death. You just can't ascend except that you've already descended. Paul picks this up in other passages as well. Now if we have died with Christ, he says in Romans 6, we believe that we will also live with Christ. You're not going to live with Christ except for that you suffer with Christ. There is a correlation. Things must die. Idols of our own destruction must die. Suffering is the means of grace. Though tragic and despaired of, that empowers us to find a kind of power that is not circumstantial, that is not predicated upon my eyesight or my hearing or my getting into this or getting into that or having this or having that. It's amazing this power that transcends all knowledge according to Paul in Philippians. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. If the spirit of him who, and he, this is Paul in Romans 8, if the spirit of him, Christ, who raised Jesus from the dead, Easter, dwells in you by faith, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. And so here we have the meaning, the fact even, of resurrection, not just past, and yes, not just future, as important as that future is, but in the present, it makes a difference now. 
It makes a difference in our own lives. It will make a difference as you train your children up in this pattern of life to embrace suffering, not like it, but embrace suffering through the prism of the cross that leads to the resurrection, through the death of that thing, which we may not even know at the time that we must die to in order that we might find and discover the empowerment that could change the world, honestly, through you. That takes me to my third point from our passage. And that is that this resurrection health then comes in two phases. Phase one, I'll describe as an inward resurrection health. It's through the door of outward suffering, circumstantial suffering, that leads to an inward healing. And then phase two is when the outward healing completes the inward healing, and we call that glorification or heaven. When even our biology is restored. Even our circumstances around us are restored. You say, Pastor, that, that's, 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 oh, come on, you're, go, you're, going a little, you're going a little crazy here, aren't you? Well, I don't know, I'm a Christian. And that's what Paul says. Here it is, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So do we, we do not lose heart, speaking of his suffering, Pastor already read to you. For though our outer person is wasting away, our outer self is wasting away, circumstances is going to hell in a handbasket, biology stinks, handicapped, heck, dying. Though our outer person self is wasting away, our inner person self is being renewed day by day. That's resurrection health. A health that defies circumstances. A health that defies human power and ingenuity. A health that is so powerful that it can only be understood and recognized as some power not of this world that directs us to that power that awaits us for all those who put faith and hope in Christ. What then is the outer person that is wasting away? Well, again, I've spoken to it. It could be our physical bodies. It could be circumstances that are not going our way. The loss of a loved one. The loss of a job. The loss of a reputation. Failure to achieve what we've worked so hard to achieve. Persecution for what we believe is right and feeling unjustly wronged. Rejection. And on it goes. Notice, we will pray, and we ought to pray, God, be your will, take this suffering away. But do not be surprised, my dear friends, if God says no to your circumstantial suffering, because he wants to say yes to a much more comprehensive, much more holistic renewal and health. Our identity is in shatters, many of us coming out of our backgrounds. Maybe God wants to repair that. Our purpose is benign. Our purpose in life is 
a lostness, a sense of not knowing why I exist. Maybe God wants to heal that. Maybe my love and my experience of love needs healing. And on it goes. Paul here describes this outward suffering. While he doesn't like it, he embraces it with faith, with hope, with love, with purpose. He says, why? Because verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Reason one we would do this is because we will experience and discover through suffering a power not of this world. Open your heart to it. Secondly, he describes how it is that, that there's going to be an intimacy that is experienced with God. We are going to rediscover an intimacy with God. It's an odd sort of thing. I don't like it that it's this way, but I guess it's part of the original sin in my heart. But I don't find myself closer to God when everything's going right as I do when everything's going wrong. Why is that? I don't know. I'm screwed up. I can't wait to get to heaven and I'll be right with God and I'll be close with God when everything's right. Because I'd prefer it that way, wouldn't you? But now, in this pattern, this framework which knows that I need to suffer the cross, a death to sin in certain areas of my life, a death to things in my life that keep me from flourishing with God and with other people even. Now, I need the medicine of suffering to put to death that which prevents me from intimacy. Christ, Paul says that we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. It's interesting in Philippians, Paul prays. He prays. I mean, he's not, a, he's not a masochist, but he prays that he might share in the sufferings of Christ, that he might more intimately know him. There is a correlation between intimacy and suffering. Even on a human level, you know what I'm talking about. When we enter into a friend's suffering, when we enter into a partner's suffering, to our children's suffering, to our parents' suffering. There is an intimacy there. I've had the privilege of sitting at deathbeds with those who are suffering the loss of life itself. I have them, every one of them, every single one of them. There are things, there are so many things that just get in the, somewhere in the recess of my brain and I forget but there's certain things that have an indelible impact upon my memory, and that's one of them. I can right now rehearse every one. And that incredible experience of intimacy that I had with those people, as I sat with them, sometimes minutes before they breathed their last breath, I know what Paul's talking about, anecdotally. Maybe you do too. There's a presence of God that you will never experience till you suffer with him. But the key is suffering with him, not against him. And then thirdly, he talks about what we've saw in, in these Columbine instances, the strengthening, this empowerment that becomes a witness and becomes a help to those who are weak. He says, so death is at work in us, but life is at work in you, Paul says. By his very suffering, by God taking him to the cross, 
it is in a sense, and I, I, we could try, why? But, but it's enabled him to very much be empowered in his ministry to the Corinth people, he's saying. It is said, you've heard me say before, that the church, it's, it's a saying that the church was born on the blood of the martyrs. It's an odd thing, but when Christians suffer, that's when the Christian church grows. You can document it all over the world even today. Whether it's China, one of the fastest growing churches in the world, whether it's Iran, one of the fastest growing churches in the world, whether it's a place like Haiti, one of the fastest growing populations of churches from Buddhism in the world, there's something about suffering that puts to death that which then enables us to ascend. That's the point. Well, let me just close this way. There is a part two. It's not the primary message, but it is an important message. Because part two is that this suffering in this life which therefore draws us into intimacy with God, will therefore be result, result and even be rewarded, you could say, with a whole and complete triumphant healing where the outward person is healed. C.S. Lewis talks about this, how it is in this life. We had it read up there. How in this life, it's as if we're, we're looking, we're, 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 we have enough of this life to want more of it, and yet we're brought low in the despair of not fully gaining it, and we find ourselves at a door knocking, wanting so desperately to go to the other side. That's a healthy place to be, to know that this life still is not fully resurrected. And therefore, we do believe as a fact of the future that those in Christ will, their spirits will be restored to their same body, in the mystery of God's created power, look, if God's God, he can do it. And we will walk earth again. And I mean it literally. We will hug loved ones in Christ again, literally. Don't have the time to show you that in Scripture. That is not a unique belief of the church for 2,000 years. It is overwhelming the orthodox belief. I don't want you to think this is some weirdo thing. Thank God it's not this ghastly, ghostly spirit world that I don't want to go to if that's all it is. It's real. Sensory, stimulus, and awe. And that awaits us. And Paul talks about that as well in this passage. Heaven, we call it. That paradise that we all want so badly that we feel as being paradise lost in our daily experience will come. And it will be perfect love, perfect happiness, perfect peace, perfect relationships, perfect presence of God. Go read Revelations. It's not pie in the sky. It's it's the city of God that descends on earth, not earth that ascends to God. It's the city of God that will then come back and resurrect the whole earth. And you can start talking, well, you mean just the, I don't know, the whole cosmos. Maybe there'll be a couple of places for people. I don't know. You start thinking, how many people are going to be on this? Are we going to put all these people on this? There's all kinds of questions. I don't know. 
okay? That black hole might take us to another earth, but what we know is that I will be bodily walking around and my sensories will be excited. And I can't wait. And so let me just leave you with this. Nobody here this morning wants to lose heart. This is a passage that promises you that while you will suffer, just maybe it's medicinal. Just maybe it's that you might experience the power of the resurrection life in yourself now, inwardly, then later, outwardly as well. And so I just want to plead with you. If you're sitting here and you've just been putting this thing off, you've been thinking, yeah, I'm going to go to my Easter service, you know, you know, the wife made me go, the mother made I do it for my mother, I don't know. Maybe I'm just here and you've been going to church here all your life. I don't know. But man, I plead with you. Let this be something in your life that changes it. Let this be an Easter that really changes something. Just don't go walk out and have your good food. Do that, please, if you can. But let it change you. Take a step, just a step. Ask for God's courage. Take the little card in front of you and just put your, your email on it. You don't even have to put your name and just say, let's talk. I promise you, no one's going to be pushy around here. We believe in a big God. We don't have to be pushy. In fact, you're probably going to have to push yourself through the door here. I mean, we're, we're just, we're just we're going to let God be God. And that really takes the pressure off this conversation. Let's have a conversation. Maybe you have a question. Maybe it's just, you just need to hash this thing out a little bit. But I invite you. Resurrection health is awaiting you. If only you'll take it.